and are dismissed to Children's Church at this time. Uh, also, just want to let you know, uh, we will be having food after uh, the service this morning. Uh, Elijah's having a graduation party, and Sharon wants to let everybody know uh, they're invited downstairs for the graduation party for Sloppy Joe's hot dogs, uh, mac and cheese, and, and some other things. So uh, that's your invite uh, to that. Take your Bibles, if you would, and uh, open up to Exodus uh, chapter 1 uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to be reading in uh, Exodus chapter 1. Uh, we had started reading through the book of Exodus as part of our scripture reading, and that's just kind of our habit uh, to take passages of the Word of God and devote ourselves to the reading of scripture. Uh, and then I finished up Romans and decided, hey, let's preach uh, through Exodus, or at least sections of Exodus. So if you wonder why uh, the scripture reading was in Exodus 17, and now I'm preaching from Exodus 1, uh, that's why uh, that is. So let's read Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. When Joseph died and his brothers and all that generation uh, with his, yeah, when Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, uh, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a king of Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithon and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shiprah and the other who was Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded them. But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast him into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray this morning. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would speak to us from your word. We pray that you would uh, give us instruction and guide us. And we pray that we would uh, find your word in the book of Exodus to be uh, delightful and living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and have things for us and and for uh, applications for all of our lives. Pray that you would give me the words to say as we go through this uh, and that your blessing and your Holy Spirit would just be upon the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I, start, I thought I'd start this morning with just a, a quick kind of uh, question and answer of why, why are we going to Exodus uh, now? Why are, we, why are we going to Exodus? So here are kind of my, uh, maybe I should have done a, like a, a David Letterman top 10 reasons to go to Exodus. That would have been more funny. But uh, I just came up with a few kind of, uh, why, why are we going to do Exodus? Well, one, uh, it's in the Bible. And all of Scripture is, is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, uh, and for training in righteousness. So it's in the Bible. It's something good, I think, to look at. Uh, often, too, I think the second reason is Exodus gives us a, a big picture of God. And often we don't have a big enough view of God in His holiness, in His, in His majesty. We love, I think, in, in our day and age to, to bring God down to our level. To kind of treat him as our equal. And he's not. And in Exodus, we see his majesty, we see his power, we see his glory, whether it's how he defeats the pharaohs or the ten plagues or, or uh, him appearing in glory on Mount Sinai, all of these things. God is the supreme king and the redeemer in Exodus. And that's another big thing. You know, if we think of God being our redeemer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to want to know about Exodus. Because it's not as if Jesus is the first time that God has redeemed His people. That's the climax of the biblical story, right? That's the, where, where all of this is going, the final and ultimate redemption. But we need to understand that God is a God who redeems, and we see that in Exodus. Another reason why Exodus, I think we just live in a day and age where, where by and large, as Christians, we don't know our Old Testaments. Or at least we don't know our Old Testaments well. Not too long ago, a, a famous preacher, and I could give you his name and you'd probably recognize it, he said, we need to unhook our Christianity from the Old Testament. And that, that's just horrid. That, that is not how we are to think about the, the Word of God. We don't know how the Old Testament relates to us often. And, and so when we don't know that the Old Testament relates to us and how it relates to us, often we think that, that those kinds of statements are true, that we can unhitch. Well, if, if I had to say what the, we're going to do in this sermon series, we're going to rehitch our Christianity to the Old Testament. We want to show you how it, it connects and how it's valuable. And then finally, why Exodus uh, and I hope I'm not being presumptuous in this, uh, but it, it'll be fun. Uh, Exodus is just fun. You remember when you, uh, those of us that were Christians as young children, and you went to Sunday school, remember that excitement that you had? Remember maybe the story of Samuel, or excuse me, the story of, of Joshua and, and Jericho and them walking around the city for seven days. And just remember how exciting those Bible stories were? And, and I hope we can recover some of that as an adult. And, and oftentimes, too, I think we, we, we think and we say, those of us that grew up in the church, we say, well, I, I know these Bible stories. But sometimes as you grow in your faith, going back to these Bible stories, you see a greater depth to them. 
you see more connections in the Scripture. You see where the Bible is going. You see more of, of the character of God in these things. And so we want to go into the book of Exodus this morning. Our main point this morning is simply this. God is both good and to be obeyed in the face of evil. So, who's the bad guy in the first half of the book of Exodus? It's the Pharaoh. And God is going to raise up the Pharaoh in such a way that God then shows that he has more power than Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaohs in the ancient world were considered to be divine. They were considered to be sons of gods. And so the question is, who is the real authority? The question is, is going to be, and you'll see some of this language later in the book of Exodus, whose hand is stronger? The hand of Pharaoh or the hand of the Lord? And you just think about that and you think about all the connections you can make to your uh, daily life. Oftentimes in life when we face pressures, when we face uh, the things that are opposed to God, the temptation is to fear what the world can do to us what others can do to us, and not to fear God. It's a subtle form of doubt. And we need to be reminded that God is both good and to be obeyed in the face of evil. When there is evil abounding, God is still good. And we want to look at how God first is good to Israel. God's hand is upon Israel even as she is in the nation of Egypt. So God's hand is upon Israel. Jacob and Israel, or Jacob who gets renamed Israel, his family was only 70 when they went down to Israel. Look at verses 5 and 6. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. So they go down as 70 people. And you'll remember back in Genesis, what is the promise to Abraham? I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Genesis 2.2 How in the world are they going to go from being 70 people to being a massive entire nation. Now, I know some of you in, in the church have a fairly large extended uh, family. And I bet some of you, if you got all of your extended family together, the cousins, and, and you went from like the grandparents or the great-grandparents and got every generation together down from there, you could probably get together a family reunion of 70. Uh, maybe even a little more. But how are you going to go from that size to being so expansive you could fill the state of Pennsylvania? That is not typical. That is not normal. And yet God has made this promise. And, and you'll see that when Israel comes out of the land of Egypt in this exile, they have at least a million people with them. God takes them from 70 to making uh, them a great nation. So God has multiplied Israel. Verse 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, what's fascinating about this is this is precisely how God promised He would bless 
the people of the descendants of Abraham. And he passes that promise on to Isaac. And Isaac passes that promise on to Jacob. And Jacob gets renamed Israel. And he passes that promise on to his 12 sons. And that promise continues and is carried out to those 70 people that go down to the land of Egypt. And what you need to see here is that God did not forget His people when they were in Egypt. He did not forget them as they were under this tyranny from the Pharaoh. He multiplied them. So, if you want to write some Old Testament verses down, Genesis 28, 3 and 4 says this, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. This is Isaac blessing his son Jacob. That you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring. That you may take possession of your land, uh, of the land of sojourners that God gave to Abraham. Genesis 28, uh, 12 through uh, 15. And this is Jacob as he's leaving to flee his brother Esau. He's going to go to Laban and he has this dream. And he dreams that there's a ladder set up. And he sees the angels ascending and descending up into heaven. And it says this, And behold, the Lord stood above it. So at the very top of this ladder. And I am the Lord, the God of your father, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Those are the exact same words that God gave to Abraham. And now he gives them to Jacob. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And if you want to write down another verse, Genesis 35, 9-12. God appeared to Jacob when he came to Pada Aram. And blessed him. This is uh, one of the appearings to Jacob after Jacob had wrestled with the angel of the Lord. But again, God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. Again, the same words that he had given to Abraham and to Isaac, he now gives to Jacob, who's named Israel and the descendants of Israel. Why is this important? Because the words here in Exodus connect us to Genesis. We shouldn't just read Exodus by itself. We should read it with the view of knowing what's happened in Genesis. God said, I will take you guys as a people and I will allow you to be fruitful and multiply. This is my blessing to you. This is my commandment to you. Guess what? Where's the other, probably the most prominent command of be fruitful and multiply in the Scriptures? Genesis 1, right? Creation. God made Adam and Eve. And what does, he, what does He say to Adam and Eve, right? Be fruitful and multiply. So Adam and Eve are set up in the Garden of Eden. They are made in the image of God. And this image means they're going to take care of God's creation. They're going to represent God's goodness throughout the creation. 
So if God is, is the King of all things, he, he puts Adam and Eve there as kind of the, the gardeners. Uh, he gives them a little kingdom, if you will, to, to take care of the creation. And then he says, not only should we subdue it, which, which is not to be seen as, as oppressive, but as, as creation care, have dominion over it, just like God has dominion over all of His creation. But He says to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Adam and Eve sin, right? And God makes a plan to deal with sin, but He continues to keep His Word. He continues to keep His promise. And so He passes this command on to Abraham. Who in the world now is going to be the representation of God? Who is going to bear His image and should should be like a, a son of God? Acting like God in their character? Manifesting God in their, in their holiness? It's going to be the nation of Israel. The, the words that come to Adam now are passed on to the nation. And this is, is sometimes what we call uh, biblical theology. How do, you, how do you put your Bible together? The thing that you need to know when it comes to reading your Bible, these are not simply individualistic stories. And, and look, I love Sunday school. I grew up going to church in Sunday school and we learned all of the Bible stories. I, I mean, probably, literally, all of them. But, but at some point in my head, and I'm not saying it was the teacher's fault, but, but it's, you know, in my head, these stories were just like, like a salad, right? Chopped up all the pieces, throw them in the bowl, and it's in your Bible. But when you think about how God has, has put the Bible together, He has sewed and, and weaved it together with connections. So that, that in a sense, the, the stories of the Bible are telling one story that is heading one direction. That is, God is going to fulfill Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, with a redeemed humanity. So man is made in the image of God. Man sins in Adam. Out of that, man is sinful and sin now permeates the creation. And now God has to become the Redeemer. And in being the Redeemer, He is also going to call a people to be exactly what He had called them to be in Adam and Eve. So not only does He become the Redeemer, but He becomes the Restorer of creation. You think, fast forward all the way to the end of the Bible, what is the hope? The new heavens and the new earth. That God doesn't just take the Garden of Eden and trash it and throw it away and say we're never going to try that again. But those who are redeemed will one day eat from the tree of life. It's pictured in Revelation. There will be the new heaven and the new earth that will descend onto creation. And all things will be as they should. God will walk with His people just like He walked with them in the garden. And there's that wonderful promise in Revelation, but you see it throughout the Old Testament. I will be your God, and you will be my people. So park yourself right here in Exodus and say, God is being the God of His people. He's keeping His Word. He is blessing them. The Pharaoh is trying to kill them, and God is allowing them to multiply, to be fruitful. God's blessing and His covenant promises are coming upon His people despite 
the enemy. And so if you think about the enemy, you think about the promise of the Gospel in Genesis 3.15, right? The, the serpent shall, shall nip at the heel and your seed will crush his head and that's a promise of Jesus. You, you see bits and pieces of that coming together. Here you have this one who is proclaiming himself to be a god, Pharaoh, and he's trying to nip at the heel of the descendants, the seed of Abraham. He's trying to crush them. And God, in His great redemption, will crush Pharaoh. We call this, again, biblical theology or redemptive history, this storyline that's connecting the Bible. God didn't abandon His people in Egypt. He's actually going to keep His covenant promises. God is prospering His people in the face of great evil. God is working the redemption of His creation and will fulfill Genesis chapter 1. God continues to move humanity to the end of the new creation by redeeming a people. And the people of Israel are going to become the people that God redeems in the Old Testament. Second, this morning, Pharaoh's hand is against Israel. So, so God is keeping His promises, but I want you to notice just how intense this conflict between God and the enemies of God is going to become. And this Pharaoh is wicked. I mean, he is vile and, and evil, and you will see it as we go through the book of Exodus. But you get kind of the, the first taste and, and Exodus 1 is, is the intro into the story of Exodus, and it kind of asks you to ask this question, am I going to fear God and trust God, or am I going to fear man? And you remember how Israel struggles with this, and she gets into the wilderness, and, and she's hungry, and she goes, we are starving, Moses. This is horrible. Why did you bring us here? We were better off in Egypt. Now think about that. They had just seen God part the Red Sea. I mean, that must have been awesome, right? The, the water walls up, and I don't know how, how deep the water was, but, but you've got to imagine they're looking up at a 100-foot wall of water, and they are walking in the middle of this. That has got to be scary. But God did that for them. And then they get to the other side and the, the, the Egyptians are still chasing them. And, and, you know, oh man, now what are we going to do? We still have to run. And no, God just crashes this water in and He destroys all the enemies. And, and instead of fearing God and not fearing the enemies, right after God has done that, they grumble and complain and say, wow, we were better off in Egypt. They don't fear God and trust that God can take care of them. And so, this is kind of the entry point into the challenges of Exodus. Do you fear God? Do you see Him as this big and mighty and majestic, the High and Holy One who is filled with glory? That when His glory comes down on Sinai, the people tremble. Because it is a fearful thing to be a sinner in the presence of a holy God. It is a fearful thing to think that I can do things my own way and not follow the Word of God and keep His commands. Pharaoh's hand is against Israel. Pharaoh has his own fears. Verse 8, Now he arose a new king in Egypt 
who was not known to Joseph. And he said to this people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. The idea is we could lose everything that we have. What if they take up a position with our enemies? What if they destroy us? What if I lose my power? Me, the Pharaoh, the highest of all human beings in Egypt. And these Israelites could undermine it. It's interesting. The promise in Genesis 12.3 to Abraham is, I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor you, and those and him who dishonor you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Pharaoh looks at the strength of Israel and he says, if I don't assert my authority over them, if I don't bring them under my boot, I'm going to lose everything. Isn't that how we often think of establishing our position, establishing our power, keeping our jobs, being respected? If I humble myself, people will think I'm weak. The irony of the plan and purpose of God is if Pharaoh had been humble enough to bless Israel, God would have blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh was arrogant enough to try to strike out, to curse, if you will, Egypt, and that, or excuse me, Israel, and that will be his undoing. The first, oops, sorry, the first Pharaoh that had encountered Joseph actually had a good relationship with Joseph and, and Israel. As they come down to the land, he gives them whatever territory they want to settle in. And he says, let them settle in the land of Goshen. And he even says, if there are any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So he, he honors the descendants of, of Jacob. He honors Joseph and his brothers. And he says, here, take care of the things that I have. He had made Joseph the highest in all the kingdom. He blesses Joseph. And out of that, the nation is blessed as it survives the famine. And Jacob even, when he encounters the Pharaoh, it says that he blessed the Pharaoh, Genesis 47.10. Jacob is a sort of salt and light to the nations. These are the people that worship the living and true God. and, And others, the Pharaoh is even seeing it. And Jacob blesses the Pharaoh. And it's a blessing from God. And so we have, I will bless those who bless you. I will dishonor those who who curse you. Pharaoh decides, the new Pharaoh decides to attack. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Lest they multiply. And the irony here is that as he attacks them, They actually multiply. The thing that he feared and worried about the most is the blessing that God continues to bring upon Israel, even in the face of a tyrant. Like many tyrants in history, Pharaoh seeks to preserve his power. He he closes his fist on the the Israelites and, and God in his blessing, it's like as he squeezes on them hard, they just bust out through his fingers. It's like when you try to squeeze sand and it just comes right out and the Israelites multiply like the dusts of the sand. 
And so he inflicts a heavy burden on them. Verse 11, he sets taskmasters over them. He afflicts them with heavy burdens. They build for Pharaoh's store cities, Python and Ramses. And God works the reverse. Verse 12, but they were oppressed. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and they were spread abroad. And now it says the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So not only does the Pharaoh fear Israel and enact these things. Now the people in Egypt are fearing Israel. Why do you think that might be? Well, they're the ones that Pharaoh put in charge as taskmasters. They're the slave drivers, if you will. They're following Pharaoh's orders. They probably didn't have much of a choice in the ancient world. But man, if you're cracking the slave whip and and there are more slaves than you, that's got to be scary. An analogous maybe situation, I can only imagine being a prison guard if there is a prison riot. That has got to be scary because they outnumber you. And if you've oppressed them, if you've treated them horribly, they're worried here as the Egyptians. And so the conditions become more and more brutal. Verses 13 and 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. I want you to notice here in this section of Scripture, God allows this to happen so that He might show Himself to be the great Redeemer. You're going to see later on in chapter 3 that God will say, I have seen the afflictions of my people. I have heard their cries because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. You're going to see a God who is compassionate in the presence of, of those who are oppressed, those who have evil being done to them. God is not distant and up in heaven and unhearing. He remembers His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He keeps them. How much more does He remember His promise to them? And He sends later on the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees our affliction and sin. This chapter reminds us of how Genesis closes. In Genesis chapter 50, Joseph's brothers are scared because they had abused Joseph. They had sold him into slavery. They had treated him like dirt. They wanted to kill him. And Joseph had become the highest in all of Egypt. He could have snapped his fingers and guards would have taken his brothers and killed him on the spot. And so when their father Judah, or excuse me, when their father Jacob dies, the brothers are worried. And Joseph says, do not fear For am I in the place of God? He says, as for you, you meant this for evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That famine that had spread through the land, people were kept alive because God had raised up Joseph in the land of Egypt. And he had used the wickedness of the brothers, not excusing the wickedness, but he had used it to work good. And God's intent all along, even while the evils are planning the evil, was to use that evil for good. It's just like wicked men plan to kill Christ 
and God uses it for good for our redemption. Pharaoh here is planning evil. And God's plan is to use it for good. He continues to multiply his people and he is going to show himself to be a redeemer, a God of great faithfulness for his people. When you think of your life and you think of evil that maybe has been been done to you, where you think of the evil that, that is in the world around us, remember that God is still in control. God doesn't approve of evil. He doesn't take pleasure in evil. He will bring evil and sin and wickedness to judgment. But God, but things are not out of control of the hand of God. And sometimes He allows His, his dear children, His saints, Christians, believers, to walk through some sort of hardness so that He might show and display His compassion so that He might show and, and display His glory. So you might get to that point where all you have left is to cry out to God and say, Are you even there, Lord? Like the psalmist cries out in his bed, wailing as his bones ache, as he goes through this horrid, depression-like feeling. Where are you, God, in the midst of this evil? So that in that time, God will show you that you, God is all you need in your hardships. That God is still good. That God is still loving. That God is still merciful. I'm sure all of us have gone through some sort of hardship, maybe multiple hardships, loss of loved ones, loss of jobs, all kinds of things. And you may never in this life know the reason why. Why did God let that happen? Why did God let this slave master beat the Israelites? But you can know that God is still good. And God still hears the cries of His children. And the Lord Jesus Christ in His earthly life knows what it's like to cry out to the Heavenly Father, the One who is able to save Him from His death. And he has heard because of his loud cries and his godly cry. And God raises the perfect son, Jesus, up from the dead. And that son is now our high priest. And because he cried out in his despair, he knows how to dispense mercy and sympathy and empathy in our times of need. God was not distant in the book of Exodus. Finally, this morning, fear God, not man. Fear God, not man. Pharaoh gives a wicked command, obviously. He draws in the midwives, verse 15. He says to them in verse 16, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. And if it is a daughter, she shall live. It's, it's emphasized. Kill them as soon as they're born. A modern-day equivalent would be partial birth abortion. It's sad, really. It's sad in our day that oftentimes with abortion, it's girls that are targeted more than boys. Here, it's actually the reverse. But the, the parallels are, are eerie and scary that sin continues to abound in our world. So he commands the midwives, Pharaoh commands the midwives to do evil. 
Keep in mind, Pharaoh's authority here, at least in terms of ruling the kingdom, is, is absolute. But, like, they can't appeal to a Supreme Court and say, well, we were, we were told to do something wrong. He's, he's judge, jury, and, and executioner. Egyptians believed he was a god. They believed that his word upheld the order and harmony in creation. He is the one who established it, they even thought. He was seen, as I've already mentioned, as a son of God. And the issue is, and it's the same issue that we face in our day, is do you fear the Lord or do you fear the God of this age? Do you fear the Lord or do you fear man? Later on in Exodus chapter 7, God says, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and shall bring out the people of Israel for, for, from among them. This is the, the whole book of Exodus with the, the, the early chapters and the ten plagues and Pharaoh and, and God and all these things. It's, it's like an Old West showdown. You know, when two gunslingers walk out into, into the street and there's that ching, 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 and people are running inside and they're closing up the windows and one of them's which gunfighter's going to win? Who's more powerful here? God or Pharaoh? Who's in control of creation? Who has the mightier hand? And there's some ancient texts that talk about the hand of Pharaoh and what he could accomplish. And God says, you want to see a hand? I'll show you a hand. This sets some of that up. Because before the midwives ever see the hand of God at work in terms of plagues and in terms of, of, of miracles and all of those things, they fear the Lord. This is leading to challenges for us. The midwives know who God is. They, they fear Him. And I think it's fair to say there would have been what we might call a, a power dynamic in play. Someone in power demanding that someone who's uh, weak and does not have power, that they do something. You think this is one of the complaints of the whole uh, Me Too movement that's out there, that, that men abusing their authority over women to try to, to get them to do inappropriate things. There is, I think, here that same male-female dynamic. Oppression is, by definition, bringing harm uh, to the helpless or abusing your authority for evil. And this is exactly what Pharaoh is doing. And you think by way of analogy in Scripture, Jesus gives the warning, uh, woe to those through whom temptation comes. He says, temptation and sin are sure to come, but woe to the one who through whom they come, through whom they come it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, the midwives aren't little ones in the sense of children, but in the sense of a power dynamic, in the sense of a, a Pharaoh whose, whose word is law, whose commands are absolute, who is worshipped as a god. And here are... I don't know if they were tiny women, but, but here are lowly, tiny, little midwives that have re no real power, no real recourse to, to resist. They're not going to be able to take up protest signs and exercise the freedom of speech. This is scary. Do we obey God or do we obey 
man who in this Pharaoh is incredibly intimidating. And we should just say the obvious. It is wicked to command other people to sin. If you have any authority and you ever tell someone to do something that is sin, that's evil. And that's wicked. And it deserves judgment, as Jesus has said. The midwives fear God, as we've been saying. Look at verse 17. The midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king commanded them. And the king let the ma- and they, but they let the male children live. So the king responded, or the midwives respond then to Pharaoh. So the king calls these midwives in, verse 18. He says to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Verse 19, the midwives say to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. A lot of of ink has been spilt on explaining this verse. Uh, We could probably do a whole sermon on this. I'm going to try to give you some highlights. First, the women choose to obey God rather than man, right? Uh, We're told we're supposed to do that. Acts 5.29, when the apostles, Peter and the apostles, are told to stop preaching the gospel, what do they say? We must obey God rather than man. That is a biblical principle. Whenever a human is in authority, instructs you to do evil, remember that you and I are under a higher authority. We will be judged by God for our actions. There will be no excuse on the day of judgment where we just go before God and we say, well, I was just following orders. If an authority above you tells you to do something that is sinful, you appeal to the higher authority. And the highest authority is God. There are many times in life where one finds uh, one authority conflicting with another authority. The simple question then is, who is the highest authority? So if a parent or a teacher or a boss tells you to do something that's breaking the law, you don't do it. Why? Because in those scenarios, the government is a higher authority. If the government, and, and all in our, in our tripart system of government, if all areas of the government tell you to do something that is against God's law, you don't do it. Why? Because God is the higher authority. By the way, we should say this, too. You know, the command in Scripture, honor your father and mother, that your days may be, be numbered. The command doesn't apply when they tell you to do something that's sinful. Submit to your authorities, Romans 13. The command doesn't apply when they tell you to do something sinful. Submit to your elders in the church. You have that in Hebrews. You have that in 1 Peter 5. The command doesn't apply when they tell you to do something sinful. Let me give you some suggestions or instructions on weighing this. First, Have firm convictions about this. I must obey God rather than man. Don't decide you're going to make that decision when you get into the situation. Decide now. Remind yourself now. I need to obey God rather than man. Spend time in God's Word and with God's people so that you know what it looks like to obey God rather than man. Second, be absolutely certain that there's no way that you can do both. A lot of times, 
the government might give you a rule that's silly and not necessarily sinful. And so you have to work at obeying both. Sometimes you have commands to balance. So, for example, this is the only example that I could come up with, and admittedly, it's not the best, and we could add all kinds of qualifications, but just, it's a simple example. An illegal immigrant comes in. We have a responsibility to care for them. We have a responsibility to love them, especially if they're a brother in Christ. We need to love them like a brother in Christ. The government says, well, you need to call ICE. Is there a way that we can keep both commandments? And I know of a church that that the way that they kept both commandments was they called an immigration lawyer. And the lawyer was able to to work things out so that the person could get a green card. Now, I know these stories don't always have happy endings. But the point was this. They could both love their brother, and yet they recognized that sometimes the authorities don't handle the situations well, and sometimes laws are unjust. And I'm not getting into whether it is or isn't unjust, But sometimes we have that difficult task of threading the needle where we do the best we can to honor the government, but at the same time, we we have to follow the higher calling and love God's people and love the Lord. Be absolutely certain, this is the third instruction, that the law is immoral and unjust. So the teens aren't going to like this illustration, but if the government raises the driving age to 20, I'm sorry, submit to it. That's not, you may think that's an unfair law, but it's not an unjust law. It's not an immoral law. Government raises your taxes. It may be stupid, it may hurt you, it may, you may not like it, but it's not necessarily an immoral and an unjust law. Government tells you to murder somebody. Government tells you to turn in people to concentration camps. Government tells you to to spy on your neighbor in ways that are are inappropriate. Government tells you to do anything that's unjust. You follow God rather than man. Second issue here, did the midwives lie? A lot of people go around and around. were, Were the midwives lying? Well, strictly speaking, it's not clear that it was a lie. It's quite possible that there were cultural differences in the practice of childbearing and the positions of giving childbirth. Uh, Physical fitness can help, I'm told, with childbearing. Uh, Ladies, you can correct me if I'm wrong later. Uh, But just even think of of the difference between like a pioneer woman uh, independently out on the the range uh, giving birth to a child versus like kind of a, a posh aristocrat that is used to being catered. You know, one, one woman is going to be tougher than the other woman. It's also quite possible, and I think this is probably likely, that, that the midwives intentionally delayed getting there early for the birth of the child. Kind of like, call us at the last minute. Oh, we'll take our time getting there, you know? Uh, they, I think this is a form of what we might call civil disobedience, where, where you don't actively resist, right? You don't pick up swords and guns and fight. But, but kind of that, that Martin Luther King, you passively resist. You resist by not doing something, by not following the commands. Uh, a sit-in, if you will. And I think that's probably part of, of what's going on. There also seems to be in their response a, a bit of a dig. Uh, they live in an honor and shame culture, and so they're saying, well, you know, the, these Hebrew women, are well, they're vigorous. They're, they're tough. 
And, and kind of to save faith, I think the Pharaoh doesn't want to admit that, well, maybe these Egyptian women, because they're pampered and catered and, and full of riches, maybe they're not as tough. So, th- so there's, there's sort of a, a humorous dig here that, that I think kind of uh, maybe relieves the tension or, or turns the conversation away and causes Pharaoh not to get angry. Strictly speaking, the ninth commandment also says, do not give false witness against your neighbor. There are at least two instances in Scripture where someone lies to save a life and God doesn't directly rebuke them. I'm not saying it's the ideal situation, but I'm also saying God doesn't seem to tell us whether it was wrong or right in those situations. One, Rahab saving the spies, right? She hides them on the roof. The people come in. Because she knows they want to kill them, she says, hey, the guys have already left the city. She, she tells a lie. And yet she's serving, I think, something higher, and that's protecting life. Also, there's a spy that's escaping the city of Jerusalem to tell David about Absalom, Absalom being the wicked king who had tried to kill his own father, David, uh, and, uh, and a woman. She hides this man in a well. Two people see the spy. They don't see where he's hidden. They see the spy. It says, Absalom's servants come to the woman's house. They said, where is uh, Ahamazon and Jonathan? Again, the two spies. And the woman said to them, they have gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. So the woman says, oh, yeah, they, they left town. They're out over the brook. And she had hidden them uh, actually in a well. It seems that in these cases, there's a higher allegiance to God and to the Lord's anointing. Now, let me be really clear. This is not doing evil so that good may abound. Proverbs says the Lord detests lying lips. But there seems to be, and I want to be really careful about this, there seems to be times when God seems to not condemn disinformation for the preservation of life. This is not an endorsement of lying. It's not an endorsement of exactly what they said. We should, I think, hope that we never get caught in a situation like that. And yet, you can commend them for preserving life, even if you can't agree and wholeheartedly condemn with exactly what they said. I would say this, as much as it depends upon you, do not lie, but also seek to preserve life where necessary. So, for example, and and these are the really extreme examples, and most of us, 99% of us, I would say, are never going to be in a scenario where we have to tell a lie or we feel we have to tell a lie to save a life. Most times there are other solutions to the problem. But one example, I heard this story years ago, and I'm not even sure where it came from, but I'm pretty sure it's a true story. Um, It might have been in the diary of Anne Frank or something like that. But anyways, there were some people hiding some Jews from the Nazis, And when the Nazis were coming, they threw them uh, under some floorboards. They covered the floorboards uh, with a rug. They set up the kitchen table uh, over top of the gap in the floors. They sat down. And as the Nazis come in, uh, they're all around the table. And the Jews are under the floor, which is under the table. And so the Nazis ask, where are the Jews? And someone at the table says, well, they're under the table. And the Nazis get angry because they think they're being played. You know, obviously they can... I don't know if there's a tablecloth on the table or not, but they look under the table and they're not there. So, so technically it wasn't a lie. 
On the other hand, it wasn't forthright with all the information, and appropriately so. I want to read to you another instance, another example. It comes from a commentary, but it's a a historical lesson again. Uh, The the writer says, there's an interesting parallel to the response of the Hebrew midwives, uh, and it comes from the village of Le Cambon, where 5,000 French Reformed Protestants rescued 5,000 Jews from the Nazi horrors. It is said that during World War II, Le Cambon was the safest place for Jews in all Europe. The brave Chambonius Christians who risked their lives faced very difficult ethical dilemmas. On one occasion, the chief of the Vichy police interrogated uh, the ringleader of the resistance, Pastor André Tromé. Pastor, he said, uh, we know in, in detail the suspect's activities to which you are devoted. You are hiding in this commune a certain number of Jews whose names I know. You are therefore going to give me the list of these persons and of their addresses. Treme replied that he did not know the names of any of these people. Strictly speaking, this was true because the Jews had been given false identity cards. Although this seemed like the only way to save the lives, Treme and others lamented what seemed to be the loss of their usual candor. On other occasion, a Nazi lieutenant demanded to know where the Jewish refugees were hidden. Jews, the, uh, the, the person replied as if astonished, what would Jews be doing here? You there, have you seen any Jews? They say they have crooked noses. To be sure, such a reply required an element of deception, yet it was more like a jest. Those are tough ethical and moral dilemmas. I think the point of the story here is that the midwives sought to preserve life. I don't think they told a bold-faced lie. I think their statement was a deflection. A sort of, why would Jews be here? Well, you said that we should kill the kids on the birth stool, but we never got to the birth stool in time. I guess the Pharaoh could have said, well, why didn't you kill them after you got there? But they could kind of say, well, literally, that wasn't the command. They're kind of using his own words against him. There are times when you can deflect by asking another question, by pointing in another way, by answering the question with a non-answer. That takes wisdom. My plea is that if you ever end up in situations like that, be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. The main point here, and you see this, God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied. God dealt well with the midwives. And it says in verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, they became their families. We need to obey God rather than man. That's our conclusion this morning. Our commitment to God, our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ must come before all other commandments. We must not deny the Lord Jesus Christ We must not say, well, this powerful ruler of the world told me to do these things. I didn't have a choice. We must fear the Lord and His holiness. Being biblical means sometimes, oftentimes, standing against the spirit of the age. And if you think about applications and ways that we're going to encounter this, 
We are coming and are now here in our country in a time where if you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman only, you're a bigot. They're going to think that your hate is on kin with the hate of a, of a white supremacist. They'll seek to take your business from you. We need to follow God rather than man. We live in a time and age where if you are seen as being pro-life, you're seen as being anti-woman, which is totally not true. We have to decide, are we going to fear God more or are we going to fear man more? We live in a time, and, and, and in conservative circles, where when women try to speak out against abuse, those in power want people to fall in line. That, that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to have to take a stand against wickedness. We live in a time where, where in certain circles, if you speak out and say, you know, the president has said some vile and misogynist things against women, and that is horrible. People will slander you as being unpatriotic and not caring. And we need to stand for biblical truth. The midwives stood to protect life because their commitment was higher to the Lord. And we need to stand and protect life and protect people who are helpless and listen to people when it's the right thing to do because we love the Lord more than we fear man. Psalm 56.11 In God I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. Don't lose your life. Don't lose your salvation because you followed the Spirit of the age. Follow the Lord and stand firm in Him. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that You would speak to us from Your Word, that You would instruct us, that You would give us uh, a heart to, to listen and, and ears, to, to res- or ears to hear and a, and a heart to respond, Lord, uh, that we would fear You more than we fear uh, people in power and more that we fear wicked men who, who seek to do evil. We pray, Lord, that you would just build up in us a, a firm commitment to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.